Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to yet another sensational Empire podcast special. You know, Empire has cultivated many great friends of the magazine over the years and Jason Isaacs certainly fits into that category. The great British actor popped into the pod booth the other week. He doesn't have anything to promote, he just popped in for a chat. An incredibly eloquent and hilarious one hour long chat which covered categories like Green Zone, Event Horizon, well of course I did, I'm here so therefore I asked about Event Horizon, uh, his participation in Soccer Aid and his sadly cancelled recent TV show, Awake. So strap yourself in for one hour of sheer hilarity. Take it away, Chase Nysix. Uh, we are delighted to have in the Empire Pod booth one of Empire's favourite people and favourite actors. It's time to steal from another podcast and say hello to Jason Isaacs. We have to pay Kermode 15p for that every time Fair we say enough. that, but uh, there you go. He so deserves he, it. He, I guess he does. I mean, uh, if you Google if you Google Jason Isaacs, the first thing that comes up is hello to Jason Isaacs. On, on google.co.uk. Um, it's a weird thing, but it did grow out of something and that's real, was real in Israel, which I think that's a fantastic podcast. Clearly, obviously, I'm in your room here, so I must honour you, and your podcast is fantastic <laughs> too, but I've been a huge fan of not just Mark's as a reviewer, but Mark and Simon yeah. for years. So uh, so they, when they found out I listened to them, they said hello to me, and now it's got a life of its own that I don't truly understand. I went to the Royal Box at Wimbledon yesterday, and I was sat between Sir Cliff Richard and Elaine Page. Um, <laughs> As you are, yeah. So they pegged my generation perfectly. And Elaine <laughs> leant over and said, I just have to say this, hello to Jason Isaacs. And I thought, is there anywhere in the world that it hasn't got to? But it was lovely. And What's it's the most lovely. So that, that, is that the most obscure place you've had? Someone no, no, I've had it on top of a canyon, top of a mountain. I was walking somewhere <laughs> with my family, and from the next mountaintop I heard yodeled, hello to Jason Isaacs. And uh, no, it's in the strangest place and the strangest people who, who uh, don't really know who I am. But So, uh, yeah, people around me have no idea what's going on when somebody walks up and says hello to Jason Isaacs. They think, why, why are they speaking formally? <laughs> what on earth is going on? Is, there, is it, are they serving him the writ or something? <laughs> what do you do in response? Is there a hello I back just, from I, Jason Isaacs? I grin and say, uh, I, what I do is I log the fact that Mark and Simon's broadcast is clearly reaching every corner of the world. I mean, they have <laughs> listeners as far afield as a lot of them in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. They keep trying to angle for a freebie trip to Australia <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen yeah. um, but no it's a, it's a weird and lovely thing particularly being an actor I'm superstitious so whenever I hear it uh, you know whatever point I am wherever I am when I hear them say that I say hello back and I've said hello back in some completely inappropriate places the most inappropriate <laughs> I think being a mock up of Auschwitz when I was rehearsing a scene for good oh my but God. also I've done it in a lecture Graham King lecture and I had I, I don't know why I've set this rule for myself I should say it not a whisper but audibly so I'm somewhere and I'm just sitting somewhere and I go, hello. Like that, just out of the blue, like some kind of version of Tourette's. I do it in supermarkets, I do it on the run, I do it in the gym. And, um, but you know what, I think that I, uh, it's a rare thing to he- hear somebody do what they do very well, which is review films, but mm. that cross over so that even if you'd never seen the film in your life, you'd like to listen to them. Because they, uh, having been in many a film, yes. segue into it in film, television, theatre, you can put all the elements together but sometimes it just doesn't lift off the page and something about their relationship works and um, we're all of us in this business in the kind of storytelling business whether presenters or actors or writers directors are after that elusive thing something that works Hmm. the souffle that rises and I could just listen to them blether on about nonsense and uh, forever for some strange reason it's immensely comforting as it is to their millions of listeners I personally find him most entertaining when he goes on a huge rant about something yeah. that he hates does I anything you get you like, ranting? I like what I like most is when he's wrong Right. he's wrong very very rarely I mean I like his reviews I think he's right about stuff but, but when he starts being 
deliberately and willfully obscure mark and Simon becomes the voice of the normal person in the street mm. and tries to puncture his bubble I like that very much because he he's not aware of it mark that's you know it's not it's not affected it's not ironic he's not uh, he's not playing a part he genuinely thinks that people should go and see some kind of strange nine-hour stop-motion Siberian <laughs> evocation of the birth of steam engines. And uh, <laughs> and that's what I like about it. But the other thing is I have kids and I hate watching bad movies and I particularly hate watching bad kids' movies. And he yeah. is unfailingly right uh, about which movies I should and shouldn't take my kids to. And it pains me when they make me go to something he said don't go and watch because it's awful. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's not... I feel, feel it's bad to talk I about think, Yes, we've they been, we've been talking long enough about Arrival Podcasts. Yes. Yeah, like, we're, we're, like we're a rival. We're a dinghy next to their, their massive QE2. It's a different flavour. It's a different flavour. The villains often get the best looks and you, you've had the Paris Hilton wig. I think you've I described have. it I've as in Harry Potter. Wigs, yeah. And you've had the moustache in Green Zone, which mm. is a personal favourite of mine. Thanks very much. Although it was odd for me because I came back, I think, in the middle of shooting that and it was... Uh, that November where everybody grew moustaches here for charity and I had no idea quite what was going on I felt like I was in some strange surreal nightmare <laughs> invasion of the body snatches or, or, or moustaches being, being Chase Isaacs or something like I that I just had yeah. a pencil I just played a, I was in a film called Dawn uh, uh, of an Ellie Weasel book who the, the Holocaust survivor mm. and uh and I played a 19 uh, uh, British officer in the 1940s and had those little pencil thin David Niven moustaches which I found particularly enjoyable to lick <laughs> it's just on the bottom of your lip and you just kind of run your tongue along hopefully I hope they didn't catch any of it on camera but uh, no, I missed that when you lick your lips it looks slightly more lascivious when you've got a moustache it's alright you're kind of licking crumbs out of it. I do get a little bit of help here and there where I get a bit of <laughs> But you know, it's, it's the serious point about uh, being a man is that it's very hard to change your look in films. Yeah. And we don't often get to where wigs are expensive and difficult, and facial hair is a big choice, and glasses, I guess. Whereas women can utterly transform themselves with their hair and with their clothes. So it's a you don't get there isn't a very big palette to work with. And I come from that tradition. You know, I think we all do in England and on the East Coast, less so in America on the West Coast, of quite fancying looking, walking, talking and sounding different from part to part if you can yeah. Yeah. and it gets harder and harder the older you get because you go oh yeah done that before and trot out you know <laughs> three alpha and hope that nobody's <laughs> alive who saw that other film in which you had exactly the same moustache and used exactly the same accent Absolutely, or it could be you know the same character twenty years later. Yes, you're that's revisiting. What I like that's, to think. Yeah, that's. Yeah. But why would someone keep the same look for twenty years? I don't know. Uh, but the interesting thing about the Green Zone look. But um, enough about Mark Kermode. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about it some more. Kermode. I'm sorry, Mark. It's Kermode. I don't know why I do that. I get stressed. Absolutely, level. absolutely. And it's Mayu. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the uh, Green Zone look. Hmm. Uh, you had about what two, three days. No, I had less than that. It was uh, the Grinzo came out in the most bizarre way. Paul was an old friend of mine. I'd done a BBC film called The Fix with him, and we yeah. stayed friendly. And uh, and he was away, and he called me, and I was sitting at home, and he said, "Hello, uh, mate. How are you? I said, "Hi, aren't you doing a film?" He said, "Yeah, yeah. What are you doing tomorrow?" I said, "Tomorrow, I'm taking the kids to school. I'm going to the gym. Why? What?" He goes, "Do you fancy coming to Morocco?" I'm like, what for? He said, "Well, there's a little part." I don't know if it's going to be around much. I don't know if there be any scenes. It might be one scene, two scenes. I was going to use one of the Special Forces soldiers. and I, mm. But I was talking to them today, and I'm not quite sure they're up, up to it and what's required. Although, I said, well, what's required? He went, I don't really know yet. <laughs> but it's half term. We've got no money. But why don't you bring Emma and the kids out, because our, our wives and kids are friendly. And, yeah. uh, and they'll all have a holiday on the beach, and we'll do something. We'll do something fun. So uh, cut to a year later, you know, and I'd finished my part in the film. But I arrived out there... <laughs> I went to the makeup and hair people who had all done uh, pretty much everybody on it with the same crew from Black Hawk Down which shot in the same place yeah. 10 years before so it was a little bit of deja vu and Paul's off shooting a scene with Matt and uh, so I was trying out a look I put a costume on and I put, cut my hair and, and they had all these Iraqi moustaches 
in the trailer. I said, give us a few of those. And I cut them up into pieces and I glued them on my face in what I thought was a little bit of a porn joke uh, <laughs> that I would play on Paul. So I marched down to the set and he was you know, busy with God knows what, thousands of extras. And he went, hello, mate. What the fuck is that? <laughs> your lip. And I said, well, I said, I thought I'd, uh, you know, special forces, they can grow their own facial hair, they can customise it, customise their weapons. I thought, yeah. I knew a lot of guys with this kind of look. He went, really? I said, yeah. And then the guy wandered over who was doing the set security, very beefy guy, and he said, I was special forces for 17 years. And he had the same moustache on his face. And Paul went, right, right. Um, all right, yeah, sure, let's try it. Let's try, <laughs> let's try a scene. So he instantly summoned up the helicopters. And I mean, I'd barely been in Morocco, you know, yeah. for uh, I think I was on set for that scene, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he said, well, so I had no idea we were going to shoot that scene. We weren't meant yeah. to shoot it. I was just meant to wander up and show him what the look was like and have a comment on the costume yeah, and the yeah. hair and everything. He said, well, let's try a scene. I said, what do you mean, let's try a scene? I don't even know what, what accent or, or who's my, what's my character name. And he said, well, it's on the, it's on the costume, isn't it? And they said, my Briggs on my uh, costume. And I went, right, you think that should be my name? And, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> So he had the helicopters brought round, they interrupted what they were doing, and uh, I said, what are we doing? He said, get off the helicopter, take Matt's prisoners off him, and uh, get back on the helicopter. I said, and say what? To who? What? what do you mean? It was all a bit dizzying, you know, and he said, I don't know, just fucking talk to the other soldiers, come up with something. So all of a sudden I was on a helicopter, which was not the Black Hawk you see in the film, it was what they call a Huey, which is mm. a helicopter they used in Vietnam in the 60s, held together with old bits of chewing gum and some sticky back plastic and a prayer. <laughs> and there were Moroccan Air Force pilots with, with I mean, ancient headphones on that looked like they'd been made on Blue Peter with a couple of beans cans. And they didn't speak any English. And we went herring off into the sky and I said, over the blades, I said to these other guys who I'd not met, I introduced myself, they're all real soldiers who I subsequently became very friendly with. And uh, I said, um, I said, what would you say if you were taking prisoners off someone? And they were going, what? <laughs> I said, what's the word for prisoners? Who do you want? How do you, you know? And, I, and, I, and then we had this, you're held in. You're sitting out the edge and you're held in by a tiny piece of bungee cord, about a foot long. You just clip it onto the, yeah. something. That's all, it just clipped your belt. That's it. Jesus. And uh, as we came in to land, you know, I knew you've got to keep films moving. So when we were like, I don't know, 50 meters off the ground or something, I unclipped this thing. And then so we, we were a few minutes off, and I jumped out of the thing, and they all jumped out and followed me, and I ran up to Matt, and I went, hey, give me my, give me your prisoners. And he went, what? And I went, you, what's your name? He said, Miller. And I said, Miller, give me your prisoners now, you dick. Or something like <laughs> this. Just, I had no idea what to say. And uh, we got these prisoners, and we jumped back on the helicopter, and uh, Paul goes, Kurt, and he comes up and he goes, what was all that about? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I didn't know what to say. And he goes, why do you stop and talk to Matt? I said, well, you said take the prisoners off Matt. He said, yeah, but you're a, you outrank him. You don't have to talk to Matt. I said, well, what should I do? He said, anything you want. You can stay in the helicopter, you can go to the doorway and have a piss, you can buy a Coke, you know, I don't care what you do. But don't give him any attention. If he comes up and bothers you, punch him or throw him on the ground or just ignore him and do whatever you like. And I thought, and I said, he said, why did you stand there all the time? I said, well, the cameras were there. And he said, you forgot what it's like to work with me. There's no marks. Yeah. There's no continuity. There's no blocking. Don't have to do anything the same the second time. Don't worry about the script. We know what the story beat is. Just get your prisoners, get out of there however you want. And I just, it was a, a, you know, it came rushing back to me why he's one of the most interesting and exciting directors in the world, because he makes the scene happen. Yeah. He's not a slave to anything, any of the normal things, but the craft by which films are built. He tells a story in a completely dynamic way. So anyway, I get off the plane and I, you know, Matt comes up and I ignore him and he comes up and I ignore him and I push him on the ground and then we have a fight and I barely met him. You know? and, then, and then we start <laughs> shooting the bits of the fight and, and uh you know, he's, it hurts. He's wearing all this kit. And he's black and blue, and he's got little cuts and everything. And I said, "I'm really sorry. Let's take it easy." And Matt said, "Just do what you got to do, man. Just do it. Just mm. get the book off me, and just you know." And he was the end of the first day. One of the world's biggest superstars was just bruised head to foot, and uh, 
and I thought I'm in this is going to work <laughs> this is just going to be fabulous yeah. as it proved to be you know for, for me I think it's a fantastic film and if you watch it now you know after the initial fuss of it not making the same money as a Bourne film or something mm. it's a really magnificent piece of work I think you say that uh, Paul said you've forgotten how, what it's like working on one of my films I but did yeah had he changed at all from the fix had he yeah he had actually in fact uh, we should talk to him about it he's very interesting and articulate about it but you know the fix was much more standard if there were dollies and tracks and stuff but I'd, what he was talking about is I'd visited him on United 93 and yeah. obviously I know uh, I was friendly with him all that throughout Bloody Sunday and all the rest of it and I watched him evolve this technique the Stephen mm. Lawrence story as well um, and what he does that other people don't do and I've been on sets where they go we're going to make this like a Bourne movie and what they really mean is we're going to shoot it absolutely traditionally we've got a script we're going to stick to we're going to shoot it in a traditional way but we're just going to wobble the camera a yeah. bit maybe go out of focus deliberately Paul does something entirely different he creates dynamic story yeah. in front of him with the actors and the camera you know it's not that it doesn't steer the operators and the DP at all but they have to capture it so if they miss something and then whip onto it that's what you would do if you were standing there yeah. it's kind of verite thing if you're standing in a war and someone gets shot next to you they get shot and you turn your head and you see them with a bullet, bullet coming out so um, I had forgotten how real he wants it to be he mm. wants every moment to be completely real and, and you know so I'm fighting Matt and I come up with once I was let off the leash to improvise like most actors you know I couldn't relish it enough and I as I left him I said all kinds of corny things like have a good war asshole or something <laughs> something like that and Paul goes don't give me lines for the trailer you know, <laughs> and he keeps you honest and he, you know that film is driven by the characters need to achieve the things they need to achieve there's nothing there never is spare stuff in his movies in fact mm. I just saw him last weekend he's been making this film with uh, Tom Hanks about Captain five. Phillips yeah can't wait to see it he's so uh, he's such an he's so unaffected by the way that everybody else tells stories yeah you know, and that's and that's I think and it happened partly because after we did the fix he did a film that didn't go down so well and he did it in great collaboration with everybody else and having a style affected by other people and then he said I'm going to make things my way and I'll I'll fail or succeed on those terms and of course he's succeeded phenomenally ever since now, that's probably a lesson for all of us absolutely and I'm curious as an actor if something is happening on the set that you're not kind of sure about and you feel very strongly about it would you go over to the director and say something or do you feel well there's set no set rule I'll tell you what that night I was sitting around in the bar with the boys and all the soldiers and they were telling horror stories to each other about things they've been through because they're from different units and you know I was sitting there my jaw just on the floor I mean a gog at the things that had happened to them in Iraq Afghanistan and various other countries that we didn't know they'd been in hmm. and then I, at some point I said what's the scare when are you most scared people and they all said one by one in the helicopter today and I said why and they went what the fuck were you doing unclipping 50 metres in the air that's what I thought that's what you did they went no you wait till it's on the ground I said well why didn't you you all unclipped you see because you did it you're the lead actor we're doing what you're doing we're following you um but yeah, I would. I personally, after this long, I, I'm not. I don't ever keep my mouth shut. And as I've got older, it's been better because people listen to me now, yeah. and I can have you know fruitful, creative discussions. And on television, where I've been working for quite a while now, I've been a producer on a couple of things. I'm about to be a yeah. producer on the next thing I do. So anyway, I always chip in. But now people have to pretend that they're interested in listening to what I have to say. <laughs> and, and but the very best directors, like Paul and like other people I work with, who are immensely collaborative. They're so secure in their ability to. Um, harness the best of everyone that they want the best of everyone it's only the insecure people that, that drown everyone else's voices out the amazing thing about Paul as well having been on set at Green Zone and observed him at close quarters I is, remember you being there that day yeah. sorry I was a bit distracted that's right no, sorry, so sorry, sorry, but it's fine um, is that 
you know, it's amazing how much he doesn't show the pressure that's on his shoulders and it must be there yeah uh, trying to follow up Bourne with a, an Iraq war movie given that the financial record of Iraq war movies I mean yeah. Greenstone did better than any of them I think by a considerable yeah. margin but still didn't do well enough for the bean counters but he doesn't show that he doesn't well, show that he's, he's got not this, about money he's never been yeah. about money and uh, you know he, he I think that's part of the skill I mean, it's obviously part of his skill of course he feels the pressure but it doesn't make him compromise the way he works creatively hmm. and that's that's why the things work but you know when you see actors on a set often whether it's on a giant movie like that or you know standing around in a rehearsal room or, or anyway one of the things that often happens when people visit sets they think the actors are incredibly immature and childish and why are actors always fucking around and making a noise and why you know everybody else is doing a hard day's work and actually part of our job and I think it's true almost uh, always of the director too is to stay childlike to stay loose and to stay relaxed and stay in the moment and be able to feel completely free because if you genuinely took on board that it was $50,000 a minute or that you're losing the sun, you'll lose the location or this is the key sequence or then you can never really be what you need to be which is utterly spontaneous and, yeah. and allow emotions and anything else to flow through you so you have to clear the passageway and that's why you hear about actors being famous pranksters and idiots and you think God, what they, look at all the money they're getting paid and they're, such, they're behaving like such morons it's actually part of the job and if you go and say it you'll see Judy Dench doing the same thing yeah you know, yeah. And so Paul, yeah, Paul creates an atmosphere where ludicrously you feel like it's just a bunch of you in his garden with a video camera. <laughs> Are you one of these actors who uses music as a way of, of kind of getting into the zone? No, I'm one of these actors that doesn't really think about it much. I, I mean, I'm very social. I, I like to be part of everybody having a good time, being away somewhere. And if you've done all the work right, they can say action and you're right in it. You know, the only yeah. time I've ever, twice, I think, in 25 years of the work, that I've ever not wanted to be part of where I was. One was when I was making a film about Germany in the 1930s. And uh, my character's experience was so um, unlike everybody else's. And, and to try and imagine, I mean, acting is just imagining. It's all, it's, you know, I watch my kids do it every day. My daughter was at home pretending to be a waiter at the Ritz today. She, she <laughs> made muffins for us all and served high tea. <laughs> and she put on her mum's jacket and high heels and stuff. But, but she was utterly in character, you know. So my job is just to try and be that person. And, and the, the hard work of it is all the stuff that the character is thinking and has done in their life and has happened to them before and just like any situation you're in somewhere you, you carry all your history with you and most of what goes on when you're in, in a conversation with someone for instance are the things that you don't say it's always the things you think of saying or the things that you think the other person might be wanting to say but isn't saying all that stuff is the 99.9% of what's really going on between people Yeah. and then you, there's the stuff that comes out of your mouth which very rarely adequately conveys what's going on in your head or does the job you want it to do on the other person so if you build all that right as an actor and you arrive having a really good sense of what you're thinking and feeling and wanting and hoping, then you've just got to let it all go and trust it's there. So like me, I'm invariably to be found, like I said, fucking around like a three-year-old on set, <laughs> uh, deliberately so that I can stay loose and not, and, and not do that thing that uh, my friends and I hate doing, which is being on a set with some other actor who is clearly delivering the performance they worked out in their bathroom. And yeah. you could spontaneously combust, you yeah. could drop your pants, you could, you know, anything you do will not affect what they're doing. Yeah. And what's the point? Because all we watch for is, is those bits of recognisable humanity. Whatever the plot is, whether it's Transformers or Aliens or, you know, two people in a room, we really watch for those bits of ourselves we recognise in people. Uh, I think Peter Mullen once told me that uh, he, he thought that certain American actors look for a part in the script where they can cry. Yeah, sure, that's <laughs> is, is that something you've come across? In, in oh, your... no, a lot. I mean, and, and there are people who would rather not do their close-up to you. And you think, well, that's the strangest thing. Well, the best director I ever had for uh, 
acting teacher I ever had, really, who directed me on stage, um, was always saying, how are you affecting the other person? What change are you trying to affect in the other person? Because the worst thing you do as an actor is express your anger, express your sad, express your frustrated. And that's what people often try to do on a close-up. And the only way, when I've helped other actors or taught uh, at drama school and stuff, I'm always trying to get them to focus their energy outside themselves. Like yeah. I'm talking to you two now and the uh, nine or ten people listening. And uh, and what I'm really trying to do is communicate with you. I'm like, all of my energy is about you. I could, if you weren't here... yeah. Even, even if there's a camera pointing at me, I'm, I'm trying to reach Vulcan mind probe into your mind. <laughs> you know, and also, the tension, you know, people say drama is conflict. The most exciting thing, I think, in any moment is the tension between what you hope's going to happen and what you fear might happen. So, as I'm talking to you, I hope that I look at the two of you and your eyes going to go wider and you go, my God, that's the most incredibly articulate evocation of what acting is I've ever heard. And my worst nightmare is that you, you know, start checking your iPhone and Chris is like, I can clearly see him uh, uh, itching to get on to the next question. And the tension between what you hope is going to happen in any encounter, any moment, yeah. and your fear of what might happen is actually what drives the scene forward. And that only works with other people. My God, that's the most incredibly articulate invocation oh, of acting. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about Vulcans now. <laughs> there was a tingling. I, I did. Yeah. I did feel something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to do with shit writing. I have to say, <laughs> it's uh, it's best when you're someone creates a genuinely creative atmosphere. All the writing's brilliant. Is that frustrating? It must be frustrating as an actor when you get a a script that is effectively filled with shit writing. Uh, well, I don't do them. You know, I, mean, I try not to do them. You know, just occasionally I completely. But there must have been a point myself. in the past where you you had no choice. Effectively, I guess TV is one of those areas where oh, yeah. you can't control it because you only see the first few scripts. No, you only see the first one. Actually, you, you sign up for an American television series. It's different from English thing, but you sign up for an American television series. Only the pilot is written, and you jump in with people you think are talented and nice and collaborative, and then you have no idea what will unfold. <laughs> and then once the once the you know the machine gets going, yeah. you're on episode five, six, seven, and the script will arrive. And well, you try and stay on top of it and give notes. And you know, I was a producer and have some feedback. There's a point at which you just. I went to work at five every morning and came back at eleven o'clock or midnight at night. I could barely drive through the streets home. And so you just kind of let it go, and then you go, oh, shit, what is this next episode? What's the story? Mm. You read it, and you go, seriously? Mm. That's meant to happen in this scene? But it's hard, which is why shorter runs of television series invariably read to better quality. It's why the HBO and Showtime series are great, or anything which is 12 or 13, or the British shows, which are 6 or 7. Mm. But those shows which have 24 episodes are a nightmare to get quality going. Do you have to be extra careful to meet the people and make sure that you like them and you trust them? You know, but that's yeah, you do. But it's a bit of an arranged marriage. I mean, I, I've done a few television series in America. I've mm -hmm. done Brotherhood and I've done uh, Awake, but I've done another pilot and stuff. And, and uh, you know, everybody's lovely on first meeting. In fact, I've worked, <laughs> I've sold projects as well, I've worked with writers. And you know, you meet someone for a couple of hours, obviously, they're going to say the things that they'd like you to hear if they want you to do their thing or they want to work with you or write for you. And you never really know. Most of the time, it's worked out pretty well, and you, you, mm -hmm. you hope that your instincts are right. But nobody's going to meet you and go, Well, here's what you need to know about me. I'm a <laughs> and uh, utterly uncollaborative but I reject everyone else's ideas egomaniac uh, and I won't return your calls but I think you should, you should know that up front you know also so. here's a big bag of cash so yeah, yeah. yeah see yeah. if that makes you helps make your decision I mean you know there's two levels one is uh, I've often tried to take the money there's, there's times I've gone down the road a lot to try to take the money for things yeah. that are rubbish uh, and I've I can't think of there's only one time I did do something utterly only for money and it fell apart the film fell apart I'm so relieved to even get paid but didn't have to go in front of the cameras but the thing is about doing it that you know it's all fabulous except for the actual moment when you're in front of the camera and they say action it's great to have a lovely big hotel room and a free 
jeweled iPod case or whatever it is. They give it a <laughs> But then you're in front of the camera and there's two things going on. One is there's no way to be good at your job. There is no way to say something and seem like a person in a situation. You, somebody, you could alter the tone of voice and the intonation of the sentence, but yeah. you're just not going to. And then the other thing is, I don't know, I probably shouldn't think about it, but I just think about people who bother to watch me and I feel I'm ashamed. I don't want people to watch me and stuff that's garbage or that isn't at least my bit of it doesn't hold up you know I've been in things I think are garbage but my bit's been alright I've, ta- <laughs> I've taken a script where I think I've got a good part yeah. and the film's rubbish but I like the people and, you know. your quality control seems very high you've been in a Michael Bay film but it's a good Michael Bay film it was example. a good Michael Bay film yeah there was a, I actually had that yeah yes it was I won't go my Michael Bay impressions but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was you know I loved Armageddon some people hate it I don't understand it I mean I understand why people don't like some of the later ones but I thought it was yeah. a fabulous film yeah, but I, I'm slightly bitter still about Armageddon because I was offered one of the astronauts and I couldn't do it so I was doing Divorcing Jack oh, no. and I had all these people on the phone like 12 people on the phone from America at 3 o'clock in the morning who mm. just introduced themselves Hey, Jason, I got Todd here, and Danny, and Brian, and George, and Jody, and Mike from Disney. And I went, hello, everyone. And they said, so, just great news, Michael wants you for Armageddon. I went, that's fantastic. Only one thing, it starts on Tuesday. And I went, well, I'm in Belfast. I'm shooting tomorrow morning. They go, well, this is, you have to understand, this is a Bruce Willis project. And I went, well, this is a David Thewlis project. I think it doesn't make any difference. I'm in a film. I can't, you can't just walk away. Well, you let us take care of that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I won't. So and I ended up getting Dusty Bin of a part, yeah. which yeah. was uh, great. You know, playing Quincy was a fabulous part for me. Um, but I was slightly bitter. They all went on the vomit comet. And, the, you know, I was clear. There was clearly two tiers of acting. There were the stars and there's the people who come in with the Dusty Bin parts and they didn't really talk to me. And so, but I, I do remember it fondly. Oh, I did man. go to, I remember going to, Cape Kennedy, I think it was it used to be called Cape Canaveral, but from where they launched the, the uh, rocket that went to the moon and walking through that mission control room, going on the space shuttle, going on the stealth bomber, all these things, and then sitting talking to a four-star general who had been, I think, to the moon, certainly to the space shuttle <coughs> many times. And I said, um, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. And I said, you, you've looked down on the Earth from thousands, many tens of thousands of miles away, and I know that it compromises your you know, longevity. You know, you, your bones will crumble sooner, but... but and I know that you feel it's worthwhile, but did you think anything about the world? Did, when you're up there, did, did national boundaries, there's also flag waving and jingoistic, yeah, yeah. did national boundaries seem less important to you? Did you think, did you start to feel that maybe we're all citizens of the same planet and that the Cold War is less important and stuff? And he went, um, I don't know. Are to me more as tits real? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry? Are they real? Because, I mean, they're unbelievable. <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't ask, I don't know. And, and I, rem- I was suddenly reminded that the people who are part of the space project were also just serving men in the military. That's yeah, what they were. Yeah. Right? Well, when you're up there, you have a lot of time to reflect on a big question. Yes. Matter. <laughs> so there you go. Um, you were also, well, you did make it a space. I mean, the year before. In, in Event Horizon. In one of my favorite films, I did. I Event Horizon. Film. Go on, uh, I love that film. 15 years. Was yeah. 15 years of Event Horizon, which is a big thing for me. I can only right. imagine what it's like for you. Oh, it's fab. You know, for some reason, I saw a clip the other day. I can't remember why it was. I was about... Uh, half my body weight now wandering around in shorts I remember the other men who are the age that I am now pulling their shorts up very high and sucking their stomachs in and going cut we have to cut I can't hold my stomach in any longer and I'm thinking god that's pathetic I hope that, that's never me well it is of course me now the idea that someone present me in the scene I have to walk around in shorts nightmare. but um I saw Kathleen Quinlan who is in that oh, film, yeah, fabulous yeah. actress in a, um, a web series okay. there's a brilliant web series or one of those dedicated YouTube channels called Wigs 
that John Avnet and Roger, Rodrigo Garcia are running. Oh, it's just fantastic A-list writers and directors. I saw a Neil Butte piece last night <laughs> on it that... Uh, but Rodrigo wrote and directed a series called Blue with Julia Stiles that Kathleen Quinlan was in. I hadn't seen her for a long time. She's held up very well. She was fabulous. <laughs> playing a very kind of blousy mother to Julia Stiles. No, it's amazing the longevity that film's had because, you know, it was a placeholder in a way. Paul was... Paul uh, Anderson was about to do Soldier because yes. he was very hot off Mortal Kombat and he'd gone to Los Angeles and everybody wanted to work with him and uh, Jerry Weintraub had a script that he'd like to do because he wanted to do it. Andrew Kevin Morkins had his name, the guy who wrote Soldier and wrote yes. Alien Blade Runner. So, oh, no, uh, David uh, Where Peoples. David sorry, Where Peoples. David Where Peoples. I, yeah. I knew it was a triple barrel name, but a double barrel name. So Jerry said, oh, yeah, I, I have one of his scripts, which he didn't have because he was a smart producer. He went off and bought one. And Paul spent a long time working on a rewrite of it and that Kurt Russell, who was then very hot after executive decision, decision yeah. um, said, I'd like to do it, but I, actually I like the original script. Uh, I, I think uh, that was what happened. And uh, Kurt wanted a year to build his body up. So Event Horizon came out very quickly. It was one of those kind of, well, I've got to do something for next year while Kurt goes down to the gym and eats <laughs> raw wildebeest or whatever he does for a living. Um, and so Event Horizon was, you know, it was not exactly knocked off. It was a beautiful film, but yeah. Soldier was meant to be the thing that all his attention was on. Of course, Event Horizon is the one that uh, people still talk about. And, think about. and does that surprise you? Because it, it had a bit of a, I, I, I guess... Revival after Prometheus came out, people were talking about Prometheus going, Oh, that's slightly disappointed. If you really want space horror, go mm. and see Event Horizon. Well, it's funny how many films have come out afterwards that have exactly Event Horizon's plot. I mean, I've, yeah. there was just dozens and dozens of them, whether they've gone to space, the ship, or whether it's actually just literally an ocean liner that's gone off and gone to hell and back. You see the same plot over and over again, and most of them struggle with some of the same things we struggle with, which is how do you end it? Yeah. Quite a hell and back, it's great. You can scare people along the way. And Paul's craft has never been more finely honed than that. I mean, Absolutely. people jumped out of their skin. But I remember we shot an ending and they reshot an ending as well. That's a, that's a new ending on there. And the ending that we originally filmed was a new ending from the read through as well, because nobody could ever quite work out how to tie those ends up. But the journey is all in that. You know, the, yeah. traditionally you would say receive wisdom is the end's most important part of any film. But actually, I think Act One and Act Two more than Act 3 in that yeah film. it's got a very chilling atmosphere it's a, certainly a film of state something else about that film you know if you particularly reviewers like you if you, yeah. if, if a film comes out and reviews go the set are amazing you think we're dead you know <laughs> but actually on that set there were two spaceships there was the Event Horizon there was Lewis and Clark yeah. and you just the, the Event Horizon because they had stuff all over the walls because it was essentially you know a one set movie we were there for many many months in the same set it began to stink and we had to crawl we had to have a life of its own the kind of flesh on the wall started to move and, and it was really creepy and dark and dank and you wanted to get back to Lewis and Clark which was light and clean and didn't have this kind of rot I don't know what they used for the flesh on the walls but mm. it began to just fester and uh, and you really felt the atmosphere, and I thought the design was a huge part, a character really in that movie. I was, and and your character DJ was in frame in, in many ways, I guess, the audience yeah. in that movie. You're the, the guy saying this is a really bad situation, and yeah. we shouldn't be here. <laughs> what, yeah. what are we doing? Well, he was, was based on my brother. My brother is a, a, a phenomenally pragmatic man. He's, he's a, was a doctor. He's a psychiatrist now, and he's been psychiatrist at various different institutions. And uh, he's in a crisis. The person you want to go to, and one of the ways he handles great crisis all around him is by being utterly monotone. <laughs> like there's no, you never hear him excited. He says everything, and it actually gabbles a lot. And it's hard to understand what he's saying, but he says it in a very, very flat, incredibly. Um, practical way so whatever he's saying however ludicrous it is you think oh no that must make sense listen to how he said it <laughs> and I thought DJ he's a trauma surgeon so yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's I, I stole that from him 
Uh, and what's the most obscure place you've ever had someone quote a Fence Horizon back at you? Oh, God. There, there are people like like that character in Diner who knows every word to... Is it American Graffiti? I can't remember what he knows all yeah. the words to. People know every word all the time to that thing. I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're mostly in America. I'm living in Los Angeles at the moment, obviously yeah. not today, but... Uh, no. I'm there and everybody, I mean, the people in Starbucks, the people who fill you up with gas, the people who are, you know, the proctologists, they all know every word of every film <laughs> and they know your entire CV and it's very, very peculiar to live there. Must be Harry Potter you get most... Uh, is I don't, I don't look like him. <coughs> I, thankfully, and, and probably intentionally, I don't look like Lucius. And, uh, <laughs> so I don't get that. What I get is parents dragging their kids up to me <laughs> and trying to persuade their kids that I'm the guy from Harry Potter and the kids think... Oh, kind of trip at my parents on they're insane it's poor English guy standing by the fish counter you know be a uh, good Halloween costume they do they get, I take that back I out. can't imagine it my, my kids do go to Harry Potter parties every now and again yeah. my kids have a strange relationship to it because they, they're a bit tired of it frankly and, uh, and when some you know they'll go oh she's having a Harry Potter birthday party you know what are they meant to do how are they meant to react to it yeah. but um, I can't pretend it isn't the gift that doesn't keep on giving I mean, it is, is such a pleasure yeah. to have given that much pleasure yeah, to grown ups too. I mean, I get it with kids, but I see grown ups and they and and they always go, "I am the world's biggest Harry Potter fan." <laughs> I think if you only knew how many people all over the world claim that title, like to put them all on an <laughs> island with a bunch of weapons and see who's left standing at the end. I went to the uh, the studio. They've opened the studio up. As, I just uh, did that. Yeah. Kind of, oh, you've just been yourself. Yeah, yeah. Were people mobbing you when you were walking around? No, no, they had no idea it was me because I've you know baseball cap and beard and all this stuff until right at the end in the shop when it all started to go off. And I felt that they would be, you know, they'd, they can rip me to shreds. They're going to have a little flesh <laughs> in a box somewhere. And I sprinted for the exit. But uh, nothing was amazing, actually. It was I amazing, mean, yeah. do you know, uh, there's two things that happened after the life of Harry Potter. One, they've opened this theme park in, in Florida, and there will be one in LA. And then there's now this studio experience. And both of them smacked to me in concept of some kind of exploitation of it a bit. And it's a shame because I think they're beautiful stories, well told. And both the theme park and this thing I did the other day, I thought were done with immense taste, mm, good yeah. taste. I mean, that studio tour really does give you a, a flavour of what it's like to make a film and a sense of all the work that went in behind the scenes. And uh, and I guess it's a tribute to the people who oversaw it, not just at Warner's, but David Heyman and David Barron in particular, that they haven't ever let anything get tacky. No. Even afterwards, even the kind of exhibitions and stuff. No, right happens. at the end of the tour, they have wands with the names of everyone who's worked on the yeah, films, yeah. which I thought was really nice. Kind <laughs> no, of it's, a, it's a great... I mean, they were very respectful to work with them, you never felt, uh, uh, particularly when David Yates came on as well for the last four films, even though there are thousands of people there and clearly there is a pyramid, you know, there's a hierarchy like there is in every film world and it's as rigid, more rigid in the film work than I think uh, many other industries. You never felt it, it felt inverted. Everybody felt like they were working together on something, which is a fiction that they managed to maintain beautifully and it mm. means that everybody has, you know, does their best at work. Yeah, the last time I spoke to you, I think, for Empire was the day we shot you for our Harry Potter supplement, or farewell right. to Harry Potter right. supplement. Um, were you sad to say goodbye, in the, in, perhaps in the same way that Daniel and, and uh, you know, Rupert and, and Emma were sad to say goodbye after yeah, so many years? Daniel and Rupert and Emma were in front of the cameras almost continuously for 10 years. And that's what they did, and it's all they knew from 11 to 21 <clears> or something, or 22. For me, I did a bunch of other things. I did a bunch of other films and television series and theatre and had kids and, you know, it was a job that I went to every couple of years for a month or two. So I love doing it. And I'm sad not to go back and visit people that I liked. I mean, there's nothing better than sitting on a set when it's raining listening to Julie Walters tell stories about raising pigs, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and also to be, you know, 
it's a little bit boring to have nothing to do in a big film. I mean, it's very, yep. very slow. But when you've got nothing to do in a tent with, A, those kind of people telling salacious, unrepeatable showbiz stories, and, B, you feel sorry for yourself because you haven't got lines for two weeks and you look around and there's Jim Broadbent and Emma Thompson and, you know... Uh, I don't know, four other Oscar winners alongside you, and you know, they don't have any lines at all. You know, um, it, it, it sweetens the pill a bit. But on the other hand, it didn't ever turn bad. They didn't just add Roman numerals and keep making films till no one bought a ticket. It was eight films of seven books that were told beautifully and went mm-hmm. out maybe on what a lot of people say is the best. You know, they went yeah. out on a brilliant high note, and uh, the quality was always maintained, and that's pretty nice. You don't have, you know, I know I shouldn't think too much about the public who buy tickets or come and see in the theatre or wherever it is, but I do, I'm afraid. I think about people watching me on telly and I just... I'm so critical of other people and mm. shows. And I don't ever want to be in crap. I don't ever want to be that person that other people say, what do they do that for? Why am I watching this? Why did I record that? Why have I queued up? I mean, one of the reasons I don't do much theatre is it's a horrible feeling being on stage and there's people out there going, but this got good reviews. <laughs> I've got a babysitter. <laughs> I could be watching telly now, and I've done a couple of plays that went down very well, had good reviews, and I thought, well, crap. So, you know, it was nice to be in something that you thought was brilliantly done. That last time as well, uh, for the Harry Potter shoot, you, I think you were just about to go off to L.A. Uh, to shoot the pilot of what was then called R.E.M. Yes, it was called R.E.M. until the band objected. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then they, and then they split up. So Right. Yeah, it's so. a strange thing they objected, because it's in the public domain. You know, it's not like Rapid Eye Movement is any... They have it's it, but it was thought easier to just check. Well, I'm, a, I'm, a, right. I'm a huge R.E.M. fan, so I don't oh. know where I stand at this one, to be honest. But, uh, but it, it became awake. It did. And um, obviously just after 13 episodes got cancelled, sadly. Yeah. I, I didn't it? ever see it. I'll be honest with you, I never thought it would be picked up from the pilot. I did it because I thought it was fantastic writing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work with the director, David Slade, who'd done Hard Candy, which was a film I thought was yeah. brilliant. Um, and I, Carl Killen had written the film that was top of the blacklist, uh, which is this film of the best unproduced screenplays, which was The Beaver, the subsequent got. Oh, made. yes, yes. And Howard Gordon was coming to run it. Howard Gordon's the guy who's subsequently written and run Homeland. 24. He'd run 24 yep. for years, and he ran The X-Files when he was, you know, yep. about five years old. <laughs> and... Uh, I'd met him, I'd sold an idea for, for, for a different uh, show to a different station, and I'd met him to maybe write it, and he said, oh, you know, I'm writing this soldier thing. It's, kind of, it's not the same, but it kind of overlaps, and I, I don't know if I've got time, I'd love to do it, it sounds good. So then a few months later, I was off this pilot, and, uh, and they said, and Howard Gordon's going to run the show, and, I, and he called me to say, are you interested? And I went, listen, you bastard, you told me you weren't available. <laughs> now you're doing this. You said you couldn't do my show. He said, you know what, I'm not available. I'm not, I just, it was so good. I couldn't. I just couldn't say no. These things come along so rarely. Please read it. And I read it, and I thought, "Fuck me, that is good." Hmm. Well, and I called him. I said, "What's going to happen next?" He said, "I don't know." He said, "Do you want to do it?" And I said, "Well, I you know, I know the guy who runs the network who had originally sent it to me, Bob Greenblatt, who used to run Showtime, and I did yeah. Brotherhood then. He's a really smart, brave guy, and he'd come in as new blood, and and the script was clever. But I just, I'd sold my own idea, and I quite fancied all that stuff of getting involved behind the camera. And I said to Howard, "You know, I've sold that idea, and it's all being written." And he went. So what, you get to produce it? And I said, yeah. He goes, if it happens. And I go, yeah. And he goes, produce this. And I thought, oh, you've just closed me like a second-hand sale. <laughs> um, and I did, and, I, and it was, uh, you know, I didn't think for a second that anybody would be insane or brave enough to make it into a television series because we didn't know what it could be. And Bob Greenblatt is that insane creative person. He went, and he was very honest with me, he went, I have no idea what this could be, but I really like the pilot, and fuck it, let's make it and put it on. And, wow. uh, and 
all the writers, and we have these veteran writers from Friday Night Lights and all that, but a lot of very, very successful television series, and they got in the room and they all screamed like a munch painting because they just thought, now what do we do? And I think 13 hours was as much as we could get from it. I mean, if you watch the last three episodes, I think start tonight, the last three, or maybe they start next week, yeah. episode 11, 12, and 13, they are nuts. I mean, they're incredibly emotional. There's huge plot and drama in it. They're, they're surreal. They're like 24 meets Twin Peaks meets, wow. you know, I don't know what they are, but I don't think we could have done a season two. Really? I don't think there's any okay. chance yeah. that we had anything left to put on the <laughs> table. I was amazed that we got through uh, 13 episodes and created plot, but... but um, it was glorious. You know, it was a glorious experience. And here's the, what I find quite interesting about American television, which we don't do here. You know, BBC or ITV, whoever it is, decide to make something, commission it, make it, stick it on. Yeah. Six hours as much as we make them, and I think five of some, um, you know, occasionally seven. There, they, they, they whack everything, they put everything on the same week in September or January. All their, you know, every network puts all their new shows on. Obviously, there aren't enough people in, in the world to, to make them successful. So most of them are pulled off the air within two or three weeks. Yeah. And then the ones that run through the season, if they're a bad couple of weeks, they're pulled off the air. And it gets to the end of the season. Unless anything is a massive hit that the whole country's tuning into, they go, oh, fuck it, let's try it again next year. And they start a whole new raft of things. And so we played out our season. We got fantastic reviews. We had a small but a manically obsessive fan base who wouldn't stop trying to decipher these things online. They watch stream services. Yeah. They obviously all know how to use their DVRs. In fact... You know, grandparents know how to use DVRs. So what they don't do is watch adverts. Nobody with double-figure IQs is watching adverts, or very few people. They're recording things and scrolling through it, or they're not even watching telly. A lot of people in America don't have a cable subscription anymore. They watch what well, they have, Hulu and Hulu Plus there, or they watch Netflix television yeah. series. And so this old model of most television is paid for most of the time by advertisers who are reaching people's eyes either sooner or later and probably sooner is going to have to change you know, it's you, like the music business it's changing radically overnight also a lot of people wait for the box set and watch the, the thing yeah. in one go yeah. I imagine Awake is a perfect show to do well Awake is a show where people recorded three or four and watch them with their friends and wound through the adverts and they can rec you know they measure these things and so although we had a very very big following particularly of young people and smart people you know who wanted to watch a smart TV show they aren't watching the adverts when it's broadcast and um and all the t television networks are trying to work out what to do, how to, their phrase, how to monetize yeah. those people. Oh, yeah, that horrible phrase. Exactly, how to I've take your money off you. Oh, yes, I've heard that phrase before. <laughs> what was the network like? Uh, because it's such a kind of challenging, as you said, NBC. smart show. What were they like? Were the people they people running around looking scared? With they were great. You know, the thing is, if you do a traditional show, if you did a bunch of people in a hospital or, you know, fire station or something, they'd know how to give notes to it. But, you know, they'd hired a bunch of very smart people, Howard Gordon, who'd run one of the most successful shows ever, 24, at the helm of it. And those people were struggling <laughs> inside a room to come up with plots that were both emotional and clever and, you know, and, and the right length. And uh, so, no, it wasn't like the network were going to give you tons of notes and rewrote. They, 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 they were amazed and thrilled that we came up with stuff that was watchable. And they were very, very supportive. I mean, I think Bob Greenblatt is one of those guys. There's a British guy called Paul Lee at the head of ABC at the moment, mm. and Bob Greenblatt running NBC. And they're new blood in American television. And they're, I don't know, you know, they'll find their feet eventually, but they are remodeling network television because in the olden days, just like here, you know, there's people here who will only watch BBC One and ITV. They won't watch BBC Two because they once saw a nipple on it. Channel Four, <laughs> someone said fuck in a, you know, in Jimmy McGovern show in 1984, so they're not watching that either. And, uh, but that's changing. And in America, there were people who would only watch the main five networks, yeah. four or five networks. And now that's nonsense. They know Everyone knows how to program favourites. And they'll go to FX. They'll, clearly, they'll watch Mad Men. They may have a subscription to uh, HBO. Or they'll watch you know, TNT, USA. All these what were obscure cable stations there now make shows that we have. We show on BBC and, and ITV here. And so 
I don't know, it's just funny for me. I'm an actor, it doesn't really matter to me, but to be there at a time when their world is changing so fast, it's a bit like being in the music business 10 years ago when yeah. people are going, hold on, what's happening? <laughs> what's happening to our business? So, you know, I just try and find good stories to tell. So what's next for you? Because you're standing in LA, aren't you? You're, you're about to I am. Well, I finished that, and as an antidote to doing a big, glossy television series, I went and did a few indie movies in a row. So I did a lovely film called Single Shot, that's being edited here in London, but uh, with Sam Rockwell and Bill Macy and Jeffrey Wright and our very own Kelly Riley, mm, uh, which was fab, and Joe Anson, um, which was great. And then I went off and did a film called Dawn, which was a much, much smaller budget film in Germany, but they'd shot in Israel and Switzerland and Germany, which is a, uh, of an Ellie Weasel book mm. um, uh, with all Israeli actors and, uh, and me. Uh, which was, I don't know if it's a model for the future, but I was on the set of this film in a dungeon in Germany and they were speaking French and Italian and Spanish and Hebrew and English. So is a, I mean, everyone to each other switching languages mid-sentence. Uh, then I did some uh, web series. I, this I strongly recommend. I'm not, you know, not because I'm getting paid for it, but people should check out some of the premium YouTube channels, particularly Wigs, okay. that Rodrigo Garcia and John Affleck are making because there's just phenomenal storytelling on there in bite-sized chunks and great series. And so yeah. I did some of that. Um, and uh, and then I'm off to make a film with the Miller brothers. Did you ever see Coming Home? Touching Home, sorry? No, I don't Identical know. twin brothers, the Miller brothers. Really? Okay. Logan and Noah, with Ed Harris and January Jones. And they are, they wrote a book called, oh, You're Either With Us or You're In The Way or something, uh, about the making of their first film. They're two boys from Northern California who were roofers and wannabe baseball players who tried out for major leagues, never quite made it whose dad was this terrible alcoholic who'd been arrested hundreds of times and lived, was a homeless, uh, lived in his van for 25 years. And the day that he died on the floor of a prison cell for the umpteenth time, they promised him that they would make the film of his life story with Ed Harris playing him, because they'd always joked it was, you know, Ed Harris. And within a year, they'd made it. Wow. And they knew no one in the film business. And they blagged and, you know, cheated and stole and impressed their way into getting money, cameras, people, Oscar winners. And they made this film, and this will be their follow-up film. And they, I, I mean, they are phenomenal human beings. You should get them in here. I've never That's met them. The two are greater than, you know, the two individuals are greater than the sum <laughs> of any parts. I mean, they're amazing. Wow. And uh, after that, back after to TV? That, or? After that, I'm doing another series of case histories okay. in Scotland, um, which makes no sense at all since I've moved my wife and kids to uh, America. <laughs> and there are, thankfully, after a wait, lots of work things coming my way. I just, I loved making it. And, and, yeah. and people really loved watching it. And... Mm. Uh, I don't know. It's the only thing my wife's liked in 25 years I've made. It's the only thing my parents have liked. And I just everywhere I go, even in America, showed on PBS there, people liked it. And, and I just, I couldn't say no to it. And it yeah. made no sense at all coming back to Scotland to do more. They're doing three one-and-a-half-hour movies. Oh, wow. And we've run out of books because they were based on Kate Axton books. Yeah. Um, but they've got fabulous writers, and I don't know. I, I, so all new stories now? They're all new stories. But, it, you know, it, it's an odd thing, isn't it? You, throw, you've, you see these films, you go you're in a DVD shop or you're browsing on Netflix, and you think... Look at that! It's got Meryl Streep, Jack Nicholson, Rob De Niro, and Ryan Gosling. How come I've never heard of it? You know, this is films. You put all these amazing elements together; they don't work. And sometimes you put unlikely elements together, and it just something just rises. And when I first saw Case Histories play back, the first cut of it, I thought, I like that. Yeah. I don't know why. Something about it is just as pleasing to the soul. And uh, they come along so rarely. I thought I'd do it again. So uh, it's LA full time now. The family is out there as well. Well, you know, it's LA. For having made that move, I'm now going to Scotland, and uh, I'll probably <laughs> do one of the reasons I've done television series you know, this last year, and we'll probably do it again next year, is because when all the nonsense about being an actor has gone, yeah. in the end, you only have the people that you love, and yeah. uh, I've just seen too many people work around the world like I have been doing in the past, 
and and lose their families. Yeah. So the most important thing to me in the world, as much as I think about fans and quality of work, is that I can be with my kids. So you do a television series. You see your kids both days of the weekend, sometimes during the week. When you do films, and I've been lucky enough to be offered films in wherever, you know, since, since the series finished in South Africa or Mexico or Bulgaria or, you know, where, wherever it is, New Zealand. I just at the end I don't know what the end is and I'm 173 years old I don't really want a bunch of DVDs to visit me on my deathbed you know? <laughs> it's not going to be enough to look through this check stops so uh, I'm going to try and do television uh, until the kids just want the car keys and cash and uh, fair enough and then I'll go back to film so I can save enough for rehab of course by the time you're 173 years old they'll probably have technology that brings DVDs to life so DVDs yeah. could visit you by your deathbed so I mean the truth is I don't really know what I'm doing next I just I have a plan which is to do another American television series because some insane reason they keep offering me lots of television series um, <laughs> had I done other ones last year yeah. uh, you know I'd be on I'd be somewhere else to, you know there are many of the things that I didn't do that are, are, are very successful but I think I'd claw my own eyes out with a cake fork you know so I'm going to try and find something interesting to do that's interesting to watch uh, that uh, but uh, that still allows me to be with the kids at the weekend fair enough uh, just a couple of quick questions uh, Jason before we let you go uh, do I still read Empire in Los Angeles yes. absolutely I do yeah, well, I'll tell you the newsstand I get it from as well good 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 which is it's, uh, I get it from one on Third Street Promenade you can get it on the iPad now Cheaper. I do. You've got a fantastic app, actually. You showed me yeah. last time I saw you. Absolutely. Is it cheaper? Uh, it's cheaper. Um, we've just launched in the States. So you right. can get it. Because I know you're, you're a bit of an Apple freak. I'm a total geek. Yeah. I geek out at the Apple store. Uh, yeah, that's my version of browsing around the hustler store. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm madly in love with it. Is there um, a piece of Apple kit you don't have? I'm not sure there is, actually. I'm not sure there's anything I don't have. I don't have a big flat screen monitor because I travel so much. So I've got iPad. It's I've got an iPad 3, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got the new Retina Display MacBook, but no, I will I. remedy yeah. that at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> but no, I do. I think it's a fantastic magazine, and mostly it's a fantastic magazine because it's not. It's kind of written by insiders for outsiders. Mm. So there's kind of. It, it, you walk a very fine line. It's difficult to do, I think, of. Uh, of it's not, you know, it's not full of in jokes. It's not. I read trade stuff, yeah. But you, when you, by the time you finish reading, you feel like you know a lot more about the film world than you did before. But it never has lost its slightly uh, wide-eyed fandom. Oh God bless you! And that that, that beats the usual written by halfwits stuff <laughs> we get uh, from our editor usually. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you about Twitter. witty as well. The other thing about being in America, you know, is there's a distinct lack of wit elsewhere. If you say something that you designed to raise a titter, you get people going, "You're funny, you're funny." <laughs> oh, you're that's really, hilarious. Yeah, why don't you do? Uh, you should do comedy. And you go, "Yeah, I just did." Didn't you? Oh, that's right. yeah. You are allowed to laugh out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about, about Twitter. Yes, because you're on here. This is you, Jason's I, Folly. It is. I've twatted twice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 1,056 days ago, to be precise, mm -hmm. saying, wondering what I've just got into by signing up. Tragic narcissism run wild or cutting edge, brackets not, early adopting, too late I fear, I'm in. I'm in, you said. Yeah, I did say And that. then 1,004 days later, you did your second tweet. Yes. <laughs> so you weren't exactly in. What happened? I'll tell you what happened is that uh, I never intended to tweet a lot, but I do like reading other people's stuff. There's people who make me laugh. Yeah. There's stuff I find interesting. I geek out on various geek sites as well. Um, so I wanted, you need to create an account to read things. Yeah. A bit bummed out that my name was gone, that someone else had my name, but, uh, uh, but I did it. And But, you know, I spent time with uh, whatever people in the arts... And uh, <laughs> you're with a comedian or a novelist or someone. There's one particular British comedian who should be nameless. Yes. Uh, it was, was having dinner, and he was doing something under the table. It looked slightly like masturbation. But, uh, <laughs> but it's like, so, and I said, what are you doing? And so I'm just uh, tweeting. And I went, what? What are you tweeting? We're having dinner. He said, it was just a joke. 
And well, what, well, just why don't you tell me the joke? He said, well, you wouldn't think it's funny. I said, well, well do you try me? And he said, no, it doesn't matter. So later on when I got home, I looked up what he was doing and he'd made a joke to another very famous British comedian who had made a joke back and a third famous British comedian <laughs> who was a film star had tried back. And I said to him, next time I saw him, I said, if you had a joke for this person, why didn't you just text them? They're your mate. Yeah. He said, well, it's different, isn't it? And I thought, that's fucked up. I'm sorry. That's like getting two famous people standing in Trafalgar Square and shouting jokes at each other, something monstrous about it. He wasn't selling a book. He wasn't, you know, he didn't want people to turn up to a concert or anything. Um, and I do see a lot of my friends do it a lot. And NBC were very keen that I should do it yeah. to build an audience. For it. But I, you know, I, the people I know in the American television business who tweet, who have 100,000 followers, there's nothing. You need 10 million people watching you. They're, just, they're not influential. They're not running out the streets to make people watch. No. Um, the second time I tweeted was because there was a massive outcry online amongst our audience in the wake, and they were going to start bombarding NBC's offices, particularly they were very hard on the executives at NBC, who were ace. Yeah. Really nice, really supportive. So I just tweeted and went, back off, they're great. Not enough people watch this. You know, it's a simpler question. Thanks so much for liking it. Um, I could be tempted into thinking I am... You know the Oscar Wilde of Northwest <laughs> London, and and tweet my every selection of you know toilet paper and uh, and menu item, and I, I think it's a dangerous road. I've seen other people go down. I'm never quite sure yeah. who I'm talking to or why. I'm not trying to get an audience. I if I have something particularly amusing to say, I should save it for my loved ones. Uh -huh. What the, what else is it about? I think one tweet every thousand and four days would be keep people <laughs> hanging. You, you answer me. Why do you do? You're a journalist. It's different. You're trying to sell <clears throat> magazines, trying to sell podcasts. You do you know you you want an audience, right? It's, there's there's partially that. It's it's nice to know that people are reading your every witty thought. Uh, that's good as well. But I like it as uh, honestly as a as a tool for highlighting news stories or and when the London right. rats when the London right. rats happened it was phenomenal right I would just stay glued to Twitter it was faster and was That's more reading up to date it. That's reading it I absolutely yeah. I read it uh, but you ask me why I tweet yeah the narcissism thing I think I think you hit it in the head it's very candid of you I'm in I, I, <laughs> and I the bad jokes saying that. the very bad jokes yeah oh tell me you know the thing is you can't hear the laughter in the Twitter sphere, you just there isn't any, I don't think. Oh, but there's, there's something glorious when someone retweets you. It's, uh, there's yeah. something else. Well, you know, I had a stalker <laughs> for seven years. I had a very serious stalker. I had to go to court a lot, and she was outside my house. I'd be dragged away by the police with dogs, and she'd get released from the cell and come straight back to my house and terrify my wife and parents and stuff. And so, there's something about for me, you know, if, if I have a party, I don't know, I've had parties, but back in the you know the <laughs> Middle Ages when I had parties, you'd invite 150 people, and you never thought about the 150 people you invited. It's always the three people you didn't invite yeah. who clearly would have you on their death list. <laughs> so now, if I do start tweeting and build followers, and you know thousands of people will try and write back. That's what they do. They try and write a message to you. I've already seen people have written to Jason's folly and all I'm thinking about is the thousands of people who think that wanker it couldn't take five <laughs> seconds to say thank you for my fabulous happy birthday or whatever it is yeah, and I no. don't want to offend more people Absolutely. than I do in my own personal circle good point good point the, uh, incidentally Jason Isaacs on Twitter has 550 followers Oh, that's not he's me. From, he's from Louisville. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he's, uh, well, there is Jason Isaacs. Here's the bizarre phenomenon going on in England. There is a very successful singer in England called Jason Isaacs who has jasonisaacs.co.uk. He won uh, the Britain's crooner contest. Oh, really? I was invited on the Alan Titchmarsh show one day, <laughs> uh, that high watermark of, of British culture. And I... <laughs> And I didn't do it that day for some whatever reason. I was, uh, uh, you know, watching my hair dry or something. And they, uh, and they were trying to get both Jason Isaacs on at the same time. 
and uh, sadly they failed because uh, <laughs> but no he's fabulous I wish I could sing like him but it is odd that he tweets a lot and people talk about him and he's appearing somewhere or whatever and, and uh, I wish I got to him before he started and made him be Jason Usyk's yeah. or Usyk's or something yeah, yeah he, should, he should change his name definitely and the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, Soccer Aid uh, which God. took place recently and is it, uh, it's a, a sort source of, of much shame yeah you know, I was injured. I tried to train up in Los Angeles before I got to England so I wouldn't make a total ass of myself in training. And, of course, I injured myself uh, in L.A. Uh, wildly overdid it one day and I woke up the limp about two weeks before I was due to fly and I thought, oh, God, if that hurts. Well, I'll just, I won't do any exercise for two weeks. I'll just get there and I'll let it heal. And I got here and, I, you know, it's amazingly glamorous. There's all these fantastic uh, football players and, and, you know, you're treated like the England squad. You've got all the kit and everything, you measure for it and and international celebrities and all that malarkey in a hotel and you go out to training the first day I went to kick a ball it was like I'd been stabbed through the thigh and I went oh fuck it's been two weeks since I went straight into the physio and they iced me and they compressed me and they stretched me which was agony and, and I did nothing they said don't do anything until tomorrow went back the next day tried to swing my leg it was just, oh, I was just and they went, sent me for an MRI and the guy said uh, said well if you've got a grade one no, you know, you'll be okay, we'll patch it up. Grade two is a tear and you can't possibly do anything because that's, you know, you'll rip your whole muscle if you try and kick the ball. Yeah. Grade three, you're in hospital, you know, so. And I waited for my results and uh, it was, the guy gave me the news on camera, you know, obviously they filmed the MRI cause, and uh, he said, uh, the, the doctor said, it's, um, it's grade two tear, I'm afraid. And I went, so what does that mean? He went, what do you mean, what does that mean? It means you're not playing. And I went, well, no, but obviously I can go on for, I might go on for a bit, you can strap it up, give me an injection or something. He said, no idiot it's a tear in your thigh muscle <laughs> if you kick the ball or sprint you'll rip your entire muscle yeah. you know you can't do any exercise and I went but can, can I not even he said look you can go on the pitch if you go on you'll be in a wheelchair or you'll be having an operation is it worth it and I went oh, I it's old Trafford it's sold out <laughs> so I left that room and the producer who should be nameless very lovely fellow came up and said that's great news then isn't it and I went what is he went apparently the doctor says you can go on I said, well, he's, he said I could go on, but he, the rest of the sentence was that when I'll be in a wheelchair. And he said, but you could go on for five or ten minutes, right, run around a bit. And I went, well, that's not exactly the advice I was getting, you know. He said, please stay. It'd be great if you stayed for the week and yeah. joined in, did the interviews and stuff. And so I stayed for a week pretending I was one of the boys. But in fact, I went to training every day, did the press, and then went and lay there sobbing into my acupuncture oh, and ice. And then... Um, on the day, you know, we got the suits on and went on the pitch and 75,000 people screaming, it's fantastic. And, and then you put the warm-up kit on and I could side-foot the ball very gently. And so I went on to the warm-up, side-foot it gently past David Seaman, who kindly let it go in just so I could feel what it was like to score a goal once. Then I put my subs gear on and the real stuff. And then I stood next to Sam Allardyce for the entire match, thinking he was going to put me on for five minutes just to stand there and side-foot the ball or nothing, you know, just yeah. so be And it went away and it went, you know, time ticked over and it got to, it was like five minutes left. I said, Sam, put us, put us on, man. He went, do you want me a <laughs> And I went, Sam, when I come 6,000 miles, my kids were crying at the airport. It's, it's old Trafford, it's sold out. He said, I'm not having some fucking producer calling me up, saying, why is my fucking actor in a wheelchair? I can't fucking walk. I said, don't worry about it, I haven't got a job. <laughs> Be fine, put us on. Then he said, no. He said, fuck off. So I said, Peter Reed, who was our coach, I yeah. went, Reedy, mate, tell him to put me on. And he went, Sam, you've got to put him on. He's come 6,000 miles, you know. And there was a minute left and we scored so it was 3-1 to us he goes I, uh, he said you can go on up front no he said, he said no he said go on right wing I said no put me at the back I can stop the ball I can tackle he said you're not going to the fucking back you'll, you'll let a goal in 
I said, I won't. I said, I, I, honestly, I, I can't stop. But he said, you can't do fucking anything, but you can't do any arm up front. Don't tell me how to fucking manage what how to act. Get on. So I went on. There was a minute left, right? Literally a minute left. And I went on. It's deafening. 75,000 people screaming their heads off. All for JLS. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Graham Lasso yeah. said it was the same as a normal, you know, England match, except it was about three octaves higher. <laughs> so... And put me on, and uh, and I tried to shout to my teammates, and I was going, "Don't pass to me! Nobody pass to me!" And Kevin Phillips, who's just a naturally brilliant footballer, can't yeah. help it. I was on the halfway line; all of my lot were back, and and he saw a gap, and he put the ball right the way up, halfway between me and the goalie. In any other circumstance, even me, who's a rubbish football player, football player, would have got to the ball, might even have scored. Yeah, and I thought, oh. <laughs> it's worth it it's worth it and I took off after it and there's 75,000 people go <gasps> and I took off and I took two steps and I felt my legs start down and I went oh no and I pulled up and then 75,000 people went oh like that and Paddy Kilty who was in goal told me, told me later he said yeah. oh I saw that ball coming through and I thought fuck 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 oh it's Jason <laughs> and he got the ball and, and the thing about it is you know the fact is it raised 4 million quid for Unicef yeah, which is the most and only important thing and, and it's not about my tragedy although they did do a little film insert my MRI and put the same music over it that they put over starving children which I thought was possibly inappropriate um, but it was an odd it was an odd experience for me it, all of that stuff was fine and it doesn't matter you know it, it's for charity and, and uh, if I could have played people would have seen what a crap footballer I was the worst bit was then instantly having been on for a minute not touch the ball I was on the dais with champagne being sprayed on me and it was an hour-long lap of honour covered in, in confetti and champagne. That I felt more of a fraud joining in with. They're passing the cup to me and I'm going, Ray! Well, it's, it's, it's happening again in two years' time, isn't it? Oh, I'm it's, definitely it's, it's, in. I did. I begged them to, to please have me back. Uh, hmm. I'm, they think I'm a flaky old fella whose <laughs> who's, you know, joints and muscles are going to tear at first stress. But uh, I hope I get to do it again because it was, you know, the, I mean, the rest of the world team was... Mike Myers and Will Ferrell and Ed Norton and, and yeah, Jerry Butler and, and James yeah. McAvoy and, and, and Mike Sheen and, and then some amazing <coughs> football I mean you watch those guys watch Roy, we saw Roy Keane and Clarence Seedorf hit the ball to each other and everybody was training and doing stuff and bit by not me obviously holding the oranges and bit by bit we all just stopped and stood as they hit the ball to each other for about half an hour like the length of the pitch and it always landed within an inch yeah. and they'd stop it they'd pluck it out of the air it was just, and then at one point I saw people shooting from the halfway line I saw Freddie Lundberg and uh, Roy Keane and uh, Yap Stamler shooting from the halfway line and the ball smashing into the back of the net from the halfway line, curving in left and right. And you forget just how brilliant they are mm. for football. So it was it was great and uh, I hope I get to do it next time. You've got you two want... years to train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two years no. to get fit for it without tearing them. I'll probably do the same thing. I'll go mental the week before. Because you, you are something of a, a football fan, aren't you? You're uh, a little or bit. Is it just... I, I mean, I grew up in Liverpool, so yeah. you know, I was a mad Liverpool fan. But when, when it turned to Spain on the Mersey, I got slightly less keen <laughs> on it. That you know, I'm a bit of a. I hate to sound like a BNP member. I hope I don't sound like that. But I do think, <laughs> I do think there's something about being able to buy players from anywhere, anytime that loses the local flavour of the team. When I was growing up, so many people came through the academy. In fact, Kenny Dalglish, who was managing the rest of the world in yeah. the soccer raid, yeah. who took great delight every time he saw me for the entire week, going, "Grade two, son, four weeks out." <laughs> that was what he said every time. Grade two, four weeks. Um, Kenny did so much to bring players through the academy. He didn't have money to pay, and he was bringing the younger players out. And there is something about 
knowing that a lot of the players on the pitch were yeah. born within you know 50 miles of the ground I think that makes things more local for me the, the money has slightly ruined the game absolutely I'm, I'm trying to remember I think you told me once that when you did the fix you were playing an Everton player yeah I was and they you stopped weren't. us going into Goodison yeah. Park we were about to go in at the very last seconds we were driving through the gates a phone call came and we were banned and we had to shoot the uh, Everton scenes at uh, Fulham and obviously the production were very upset I was thrilled that I didn't have to go on the pitch there it was bad enough wearing the blue outfit yeah. the blue not with the red not blue over red you didn't put a Liverpool top underneath no, no, just to be I, you know, I didn't. slightly sneaky uh, Grant well I think on that bombshell it is time yeah, to say well, goodbye well listen I, I will keep reading and, uh, well thank you sir I've yeah. been knocking off films as fast as I can to justify <laughs> being back at those fabulous awards of yours and, uh, oh, yeah. and on film podcasts which is where I feel my spiritual home is we missed you last, uh, at the last I know, I've, I've missed a few of them but uh, yeah thanks a lot uh, Jason it's been a pleasure uh, thanks, thanks for having me take care